Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Tata. What you're about to hear is a live session from the Jaipur Literature Festival 2022, and it's called The Sacred Feminine. Arundhati Subramanyam, Alka Pandey, and Malashri Lal in conversation. mythology and the sacred feminine is all around us we celebrate festivals we pray homage to Devi in her many appearances and in many places around us we meet bhakts we see bhakti we see manifestations of a practice religion and faith my two speakers here are eminently qualified to speak in detail on the aspect of the feminine, I'll first invite Alka Pandey to elaborate on her book on Shakti. We all hear about the story of Sati and how she was humiliated because her husband was not invited to a yagya and how Shiv was so angry about the self-immolation of Sati that he carried her body on his back and took on the Rudra Tandav, which was to destroy the world. It was, of course, Vishnu who was able to put a stop to it, and Sati's body parts fell across a sacred geography of the country. So over to you, Alka, to take forward the findings of your research on the Shakti Pitas. Sarva Mangal Mangalke Shive Sarvarth Sarthike Sharne Trembike Gauri Narayane Namustute. Salutations to you, O Narayani, who is the auspiciousness in all the auspicious, auspiciousness herself, complete with all the auspicious attributes, and who fulfills the objectives of the devotees. She who is the giver of refuge with three eyes and a shining face, salutations to you, O Narayani. So I just wanted to begin with that shlok because Shakti is everywhere. It's here, it's there, it's everywhere. It's in you, it's in me. Thank you, Mala, for the lovely introduction. I'm delighted to have Arundhati on the panel. She's a poet and she will look at the energies and the manifestations of energies through her own personal devotion. For me, the book is actually my own journey with my upbringing. I come from a family of sharks. We are from Uttarakhand and my father is a great worshipper of the Devi. In the days past, Hamare ghar mein bali chadti thi. And uh, it may sound very, uh, you know, quite cannibalistic in a way, but bohat saal pehle, Nobody in the house could have meat without the blood of the bali on their tongue. So we have various manifestations of Devi. Devi as a nurturer, Devi as Kali with her tongue, 
dripping blood. But when I started this particular journey and started unraveling the worship that I'd seen in my house from the Navratri Pujas to the chanting of the Chandi part, which is Kantasth for my father. You go to convent schools, you start speaking English and somewhere along the line, there is a dilution. But as you grow older, it's a very strange thing, Mala. You go back to your roots, you go back to your, to your, to, to your childhood. And then when, when I was commissioned, uh, to do this book on Shakti, I thought what could be better than doing the Shakti Peets because they are the sacred geography. And I'll just take two minutes to just read from my book, uh, the, just the two paragraphs, which will really lay out the work. When we think of Shakti, the first thought and image that comes to mind is the all-powerful Durga stride, her tiger. She's seated comfortably on the dangerous beast, signaling to everyone that the might of the tiger is completely under her control. Yet another potent image is that of Kali, her tongue coated with fresh blood, naked, her hair unbound, standing on top of an inert primordial shiva, wearing a garland of skulls that fall on her voluptuous breasts. The Devi Sahasranam is a living text of the number of avatars or forms of Shakti that have been transformed into and which are more than a thousand and one. Sifting through the layers of myths, I would like to clear the trajectory I'm creating in my personal journey to the affirmation of the feminine power of Shakti, where, where she emerged from, how Sati becomes one of her manifestations in a sagun or form, and how as Sati, she spreads her area of power and strength in her 51 dwellings. I go back to the very origins. Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Buddhi Rupena Samsata Namastasye 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 Namo Nama to the goddess who dwells within all beings in the form of intellect, I bow down again and again and again. How beautiful. Thank you, Alka. I'll uh, turn to Arundhati Subramaniam now, whereas Alka is looking into the stories of the past and how they are manifested in today's practice. You have this uh, beautiful book called Women Who Wear Only Themselves. And this is about women today who are seekers. In some ways, one can even call them saints. But they're not institution builders. They're ordinary women who have taken the path of seeking the divine. And you, in your own way, have also been a seeker of the divine and of poetry. And I've read your wonderful, moving uh, biography of Sadhguru, too. So how do you place your work in the context of the sacred feminine? Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes. Thank you, Mala. That's an interesting question, and it's wonderful to have started with this invocation to Devi by Alka. I've been a spiritual seeker, I think, for as long as I can remember, Mala. Perhaps not in a way that I ever defined to myself. In many ways, a closet seeker for a long time. 
and then one day one could be in the closet no longer. It's a long story, but I'm not going to dwell on it at any length. What I would like to say is that for years I spent my time thirstily reading the literature of mystics. And I dive deep into all of it, from Ramana Maharishi to Ramakrishna Paramahansa, from Nisargadatta Maharaj to Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and much more. And I was nourished and I was grateful as I continue to be. I even found my own guru, as uh, Mala mentioned. But what remained was a particular thirst for the voices of women. And it just struck me that I hadn't heard enough of those. I hadn't heard enough of the voices of women on this journey, particularly contemporary women. I remember being struck by this every time I read um, any account of the religious history of the subcontinent. And I would come across the names of male religious reformers, scriptural scholars, institution builders, the women were shadowy presences always. And so I looked back on my own life and I realized that in the past decade, much of which I've spent in the southern part of India, I had actually been very deeply grateful to conversations with women. And I realized it was time in some way to bring those together. And so the four women in this book are crazily diverse. One is in a contemplative tradition, the other is in the ecstatic tradition. One is a tantric, one is a bhakta, one is a devotee, one is an intellectual. One is a monk, the other wears blue jeans and the third wears no clothes at all. That's how diverse they are. And each one of them on a path so singular, so idiosyncratic, so compelling, that I just felt grateful to be around as a listener. And this book was put together in the faith that there will be perhaps other listeners out there as well who would want to tune in to these conversations. The idea is not to advocate any path or denounce any path. The idea is just to be present as a listener. And for me, that was the most gratifying experience of all. To take that uh, idea forward, <clears throat> uh, the interest in the divine feminine has also reflected on the body of the woman. And that fascinates me because somewhere when we talk of Devi, and particularly the Shakti Peters, which is based on the body parts of Sati, uh, we are worshiping the female body. When we look at the violence against the woman today in ordinary lives, and Madam Minister also mentioned it, that is a violence against the body of the woman and because of the body of the woman. So where do we locate this gap between the worshipful attitude towards the female body and the uh, violent, abusive attitude towards the female body. So both of you, in your research, how do you reflect on the body of the woman? 
the sharira, as Alka uses that in her uh, essay. This, this sharir, when does it become sacred? When does it become subject to abuse? Well, I am going to, uh, you know, talk from my practice as an art historian and as a person who studied the uh, morphology, particularly of Ardhanarishwar, which was my doctoral work. And um, I like to use the word sharira because it is a saguna form of worship. And within our culture, we've always worshipped in the saguna form in the image of the of man. So when the Devi is being worshipped, I'm not talking of the Nirakar, I'm talking of the Saguna form. And when the Devi is being worshipped, she has the ideal form of the human body. The body becomes the sacred space in which resides the divine. But when, when you look at uh, when you're talking of uh, rage and molestations and attack on the female body, I somehow think it's also related to power, to balance. There's always been a very strong male trajectory and there's been a very strong trajectory of, as Arundhati had mentioned, of the tantrics where the woman is all powerful and also the sharks who believe that Shiva without Shakti is a Shava. So when you look at the female body at one level, which I think all of us would agree, she's worshipped, it's divine, it's a supra body. It's a very sacred, very, very, um, uh, uh, you know, powerful body. But what does one do when a person is not, uh, I would say, refined in their sensibilities? You see today in Kamakya, that the body, she's, the Lajja Gauri image is covered because of the gaze. And I think it has a lot to do with the gaze. Who is looking? How are you looking? How are you perceiving? So if, a, if the male gaze is um, very, uh, uh, you know, it's a commodifying gaze, then the female body is looked at in a different way. But when the bhaks go and worship, when Adi Shankaracharya worships and in his Sandarya Lahiri, he talks of the, uh, of the body of the Devi, it, he is talking of her luscious, pendulous breasts, but he's talking of it in a very, very, um, you know, critical, uh, theoretical, spiritual. There are so many things involved in that. So I think ultimately it becomes who is the worshipper, who is looking and what is the gaze all about. Yes, I would agree with that. And I'd also say more personally that when I began my spiritual journey, I had visions of becoming this wonderfully serene human being. That's what I hoped I would become. What I never realized is that any spiritual journey of any authenticity drops you first into your body. And that is the place that you absolutely cannot escape, as I discovered. And that's when I also realized this extraordinary legacy of the bhakti poets of this country, 
who reminded me again and again that we had a literary ancestry that told us that the body is not a barrier, but that the body is the very basis of the spiritual journey. And they told us this time and again, they were able to celebrate the body, but they were also able to see the body as a site of pain, as a site of the erotic, as a site of transformation. And uh, whether it's Soira Bai who says, she's a 14th century Dalit woman mystic of Maharashtra, whether it's she who says, if menstrual blood makes me impure, show me who wasn't born of that blood. Or whether it is Annamacharya, the male mystic of the 15th century, who adopts a female voice to speak of the spiritual journey as many of the male mystics did. And when he adopts a female voice, he's able to say that God is not just my boss, he's also my slave. Because the intimacy of the relationship that is possible here now allows him to do that. So when I came to the women in this book, and I'd like to just very briefly mention the four of them, each of them inhabits the body differently. The very first woman is Annapurniyamma, who chooses to live much of the time naked. And when I went in to see her and saw her sitting resplendent, wearing her body almost casually, it struck me that this was another way of wearing the self. And in my conversation with her, at one point, she wore her body really like a lion. That's how I, I saw her. And at one point in the conversation, she told me, she says, the whole world calls me crazy. The whole world calls me promiscuous. And when I told my guru about that, he said to me, the whole world goes around chasing multiple priorities, wealth, family, career, success, what have you, health. But here you are simply on a one-pointed journey of the spirit. Who here is truly promiscuous? I must say that when I actually stepped out of her little hermitage that day, that question rang in my ears. Who really is crazy here? Thank you. Um, Alka, to take some of these uh, thoughts a little further, uh, you have tracked the history, geography, and practices in the 51 Shakti Peets, which to my surprise also included areas in Bangladesh, Tibet, Nepal, Pakistan, Sri Lanka. When it comes to the practice of the Devi Bhakti, how are these areas outside of India different than the ones that we know of, the active practice in Kamakya and uh, the Kali Mandir in Calcutta, for example? That's a, <clears throat> that's a very interesting uh, and a rather complicated question. Um, in my head, it's just that this was a geography which was very much part of what I would in my head say pan-Indian. And these are areas where in our mythology, which is, you know, uh, received kind of wisdom through years, uh, which is a cultural story, the body parts fell because to show the expanse of Shiva, 
of the Rudra Shiva dance, which was, you know, he was in such uh, sadness, sorrow uh, of losing his beloved Parvati, who's part of him. Because if you look at the concept of Ardhanari Ishwara, Shiv and Shakti are part of one composite Sharira. So he felt the great loss in such a way. And when he was doing his dance and the body parts fell in these different areas, uh, the, the um, sanctity of the divine form of Devi was absorbed in these different cultures. And I think in India, I don't call India a country, I really call it a continent, because there are so many different kind of manifestations, different regional variations. When I was doing the Shakti piece, I also see the Prashad changing. The Prashad which is given to Devi in um, West Bengal, Bangladesh is a Khichdi and Paish. Whereas if you go to the mountainous areas, it's meat and sweet because these were the kinds of prashads that were given to the Devi. You go to South India, the prashad there changes. So therefore the bhakti and the worship and the rituals of worship in these different regions are very much guided by the, uh, you know, the rituals, the food habits, the cultural content of the spaces where the body parts fell. So this is the way I would look at it. It's very interesting because when Namita Gokhale and I were working on our book on Sita, and uh, as we know, the Ramayan story is told in many cultures. You said the South uh, Asian continent had the story passing through it. There were versions which had developed in Indonesia and the Philippines, which had very little to do what, what the Ramayan means to us and what Sita means to us in India. And again, within India, you're completely right. There are micro practices which are different. So um, uh, Arundhati, I want to relate your poetry to uh, the conversation that you had with the women. One of them is a, practicer, a practitioner of uh, Nad Yoga, the sound. And I felt reading those chapters that you as a poet were very drawn to this idea of uh, meter, rhythm, sound, prayer, shlokas, chanting, that whole range by which we express our religiosity. So uh, you've also interspersed the chapters with your own poetry at times, poetry that relates to the story of the woman that you are interviewing. So how do you link the mystical mysticism, the quest uh, of those people, your quest as a seeker and your interest in the sound of poetry? You're right, there was an excitement, I think, in that particular conversation, because Bala Rishi is another yogini. For her, her guidance comes from the realm of primal sound. And that aspect of poetry excites me hugely. The timber of the voice, the tone, rhythm, all of that. If I had to offer you a very short answer to this question, I'd say that many years ago when I 
started out as a young poet. I was excited by metaphor and I was excited by rhythm and I was excited by the sensuousness of language and all of that endures. What I had not prepared myself for were the silences that are also an integral part of poetry. So I had a particular experience that for me was a direct encounter, or that's how it, it seemed to me. It seemed to me like a direct encounter with the blank spaces on a page of poetry. That really is how it felt. And as I emerged from that experience, I realized that I needed to make my peace with those silences that are an integral part of a poem. So the poems that intersperse these essays are born of that respect for silences. They're also born of that respect for poetry itself as a form that cuts through. It cuts through the smog of doctrine and opinion and ideology and philosophy. It works with the language of suggestion, of clues. It offers you clues. It invites you to simply recognize what you already know. And I felt that that would be the right way to invite the reader into the realm of the mystic. Thank you for that uh, insight, Arundhati. Uh, Alka, my specific question this time is on the two Shakti Peets that most of us are familiar with. The Kamakya, which is the quiescent, beauteous, uh, youthful aspect of the Devi, and the Kalighat, which has the uh, angry, uh, against evil uh, aspect of the Devi. The physical appearances that we imagine of the Devi in both these sites is also very contrasted and very different. And through iconography too, you get a diversity which is absolutely startling. So how do you understand, interpret, uh, accept for current relevance, these two very different aspects of the Devi both of whom are deeply revered and deeply worshipped. These are <clears throat> really tough questions because there's such a difference between the philosophy and the actual interpretation and the way the worship is perceived by people who are non-believers. So when you go to Kamakya, you don't really see the yoni per se, because you have to go deep down into the deep cavernous place where there is a cleft of water, which in which the icon is just a stone. It's a cleft, which is supposed to be the yoni. And you put, you dip your hands there and you put that red water. So can you imagine men putting menstrual blood on their foreheads, but they do it in, um, in a metaphorical way when they go to the Kamakya temple. When you talk of Kaligat, it's completely different. It's not so personal. It's not so, so dank. It's not so dark. It's not so mysterious. 
because in Kamakya, the Devi is not just only quiet and beautiful. She is virile, she's ferocious, she's a tantric goddess. There are the thus Mahavidyas around the Kamakya temple. And she can also be very fearsome. You see a lot of kinners who go there. There is a whole festival of kinners who go there. So in Kamakya, also the Devi has all her forms. But when we go to Kaligat, the entire way of worshipping the Devi also becomes different because over the years, you also see Dakshineshwara, which is where Aurobindo went, which is a different place. And Kali is very ferocious there. She is not so creative as she is ferocious. But I think... In the temple in Kaligat, as you go today, and when I went even during COVID times, the Devi is perceived both by men and women as a very powerful icon. And what is interesting for me is that both in Kamakya and in Kaligat, the men are completely subservient when they are worshipping her. So in the worship, there is no kind of, uh, uh, you know, that... Uh, rage what we have what you were talking about or uh, the way uh, women are treated in today's world and the kind of problems she has to face there the men are completely subservient even today in today's time so it's very it, it's there's a huge polarity when you see the way particularly the men behave in both these peters uh, uh, Arundhati, I don't know if you're carrying any of your poetry with you. <laughs> if you, you have your book with you, it would be wonderful as we come to the closing parts, minutes of the session, if you could uh, read one of your poems. Because the subject that we're talking about, the sacred feminine, it's very relevant in changing our thinking today because the idea brings with it a kind of peace, prayer, compassion, and understanding of both men and women in society and the sacred relationship, a relationship that is to be nurtured and that is to be seen as one of equality as in the Ardhanarishwar image that Alka spoke about and has a brilliant book about. So I will request uh, Arundhati Subramaniam to please read one of her poems from her book. Since I did mention Annapurniyamma, the naked woman mystic, it feels right to read this particular poem to her. It's a poem called The Lover. The woman doesn't call herself a saint, just a lover of the saint who's been dead 300 years. She doesn't see people on weekdays, but her master tells her we are safe. So she calls us in to where she sits, her body blazing in its nakedness, a crumpled, afterthought, its tummy fold and breast sag 
and wild spiraling nipple, reminding us that life is circles, crazy, looping, involuting, dazzling circles. She tells us the world calls her a whore. She told her master about it too, but he only said, the rest of the world serves many masters, family, money, lovers, bosses, fame, power, money, money, in endless carousels, the crazy autopilot of samsara. But you, love, think only of me. Who's the whore here? Outside the window, the sun is a red silk lampshade over a great soiled bedspread, ricocheting in the wind. Thank you very much, Arundhati Subramaniam and Alka Pandey for this thoughtful, beautiful, and highly significant session when we begin to look at the woman again and we see her as the sacred feminine. Thank you also for a wonderful, attentive audience. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes. Ah.